Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 108. And I have a beautiful woman joining me this uh, afternoon, evening, morning, wherever it is, whatever time it is with you, uh, Kim Morrison. She has written a gorgeous book called The Art of Self-Love uh, and I first came across Kim just as being someone else in the space of of helping people navigate the seemingly complicated yet incredibly simple world of health um, and doing it from such a, a high integrity place. And then I joined her and her two co-hosts, uh, Cindy Amira being one of them who has been on my show, uh, talking all about food myths. Um, that was such a good show, by the way, if you want to go back into the archives and find it. I just love talking to her. And there are some times there's just people that you click with and you feel like you get into the nitty gritty really fast and you talk about things that are really important. And uh, this conversation that Kim and I have had is no exception. Uh, She is gifted at the art of not only self-love, but teaching people how to then use that self-love to develop more satisfying relationships with others, um, be it um, business colleagues, be it your family, be it your, you know, your child, um, and to really hold space for people in your life in a really meaningful way. Something that we can miss, you know, we can be really busy and we can not have those conversations. We can not make space for deep nitty gritty stuff to happen. And I know that's happened for me before. So, you know, it's, it's a really important thing to start with loving ourselves and then see how that love, um, can then help us love so many in a really real way. And I I mean, that, that sounds like so woo woo, but you know, a lot of us say, love you. And, you know, are we really showing it? Are we really connecting? Is it really juicy, um, meaningful, you know, shed a tear kind of love when it means so, so much. And, uh, and I feel like today's conversation, which she bears all on a few really difficult things that happened in her life, really helps us to realize that if we lead with love and love from ourselves, so much goodness can come from that. Um, And it allows us to trust when there are some really dark moments we have to deal with in life. So uh, that conversation is coming up in just a second. uh, And the beautiful uh, Ree Sparkle, who you might have seen me help um, introduce her gorgeous uh, rebranded range recently on Facebook, Uh, is supporting the show for the next couple of weeks. And I cannot believe it's October. That's actually quite nuts. So Pearl, Pearl Chan, founded ReSparkle in uh, Melbourne. So it's an Australian brand and currently only available in Australia, but that's that could change. So keep an eye out and put her on your radar. Um, ReSparkle.com.au is the website. And she's offered uh, anyone who signs up to their rewards program will instantly receive $10 to put towards that first order. Resparkle is a beautiful cleaning range, lots of different products to look into. And I still remember getting my original Resparkle spray bottle. I still have that spray bottle. I think it's about seven years ago she started the business, six, seven years ago. Um, and, uh, and it's just, it was such a good product. It's now even better. 
and uh, and I just love supporting local low-tox businesses uh, to thrive and to grow and to get the word out for them and Resparkle is definitely one of those um, brands that we should get behind and support because the integrity with which Pearl operates, you know, she runs ingredients past me. We do some research to see what might be the best uh, thing to use in certain situations in terms of for people, for planet. And I just think, you know, if we if we have more of these sorts of conversations before people go to all the trouble making formulations, uh, we can we can really start right and start as we wish to continue. Uh, and um, and I've seen the range, I've used it now, and it's absolutely gorgeous. So you have ten dollars to put towards your very first order when you sign up for the rewards program on resparkle.com.au. And you also then earn points for every dollar you spend. So, you know, over time that becomes a bit of a slush fund where every now and then you'll get a few products for free, which would be amazing. Who doesn't want to save some cash on household cleaning stuff? Plus, Resparkle have this fantastic little competition where once you've got um, your your products, and I would recommend the Ultimate Cleaning Kit because that's just kind of got everything happening, um, they're actually challenging you to send in a photo, and all the details are in the show notes, by the way, of the dirty oven or barbecue um, and uh, basically how using the Resparkle um, all-purpose cleaning kit was super effective, like a bit of a before and after situation. And uh, everybody then goes into the um, draw to receive a $50 Resparkle voucher. But there will also be two winners um, who will have their ovens fully cleaned by Resparkle at a later stage when it needs cleaning again. Who does not want someone to come into their house and clean their oven? It's like my least favourite job. Um, And 10 runners-up will win the whole kit. So that's pretty cool. And all the details for that are on the show notes if you wanted to enter that. If you're a keen bean and you want to get involved, then go check it out. So that's all I wanted to say about that. Um, And let's just hook into this conversation with Kim because it's a beautiful one and I know you're going to enjoy it as much as I enjoyed having it. Hey, Kim, how are you? I'm really good. Thanks, Alex. Really good. I am so excited for the chat we're just about to have. Me too, sweetheart, and thank you so much for having me. It's such a treat to be with you. Oh, it's awesome, and I loved the chat that I had with you guys when I was on your Up For A Chat podcast, a couple, oh, I think it was about a year ago now. Um, Do you know we've had so many beautiful, wonderful comments and feedback about that. You really are making a difference, and I just want to say thank you. Thank you for the work that you're doing because a lot of people got a lot of ahas. A lot of people didn't know much about low-tox living or ways that they could change things in their own homes. So what a cool thing that we can all be supporting each other to help people learn and how they can make small but really significant changes. So, oh so well done. Oh, wow. Thank you. Um, yeah. yeah, wow. I don't really know what to say now. I'm blushing a bit. Um, so I'm just so used to being on my show and it being all about the guest. <laughs> so given that you are on my show and it is all about you today, um, I would love to start by just sharing a little bit of your story in your own words for the people who haven't come across you and your work before um, and how you came to be doing what you do today. I 
I think it began for me as a as a girl where mm. I've always been a bit of a touchy-feely type and probably a little fixer and always interested in plants and loved cooking and all of those sorts of things. Had no concept growing up in the 70s um, around, you know, low-toxin living or, or gluten-free or anything of those sorts of things, of course. But I don't think it was a bad thing back then because it was basically, you know, meat and three veg on our plates and mum couldn't afford fancy cleaners and things like that. So I think we were pretty lucky with our kind of very humble upbringing. And I was very passionate about netball, loved my sport, loved school. Um, and then I guess it was when I was 19, when I'd finished school and I'd been working and travel for a couple of years, that I went off on my OE and hit the shores of Melbourne. Mm. I did happen to meet a man in amongst all of that, which is another story. He did become my husband many years later, but um, it was quite cute. But when I was in Melbourne, I, I don't believe there's any accidents. And I was working in a gymnasium right there, up close to the Dandenongs. And next to the gymnasium was a beautiful natural therapies college, which always kept drawing me. Maybe it was my love of plants and food. Um, certainly the day that I knocked on the door and, and it opened, I walked in and I remember this diffuser sitting on the, actually it was a vaporizer. It had a candle in it and this beautiful aroma. And while I was standing there waiting, I picked up a few brochures about essential oils and the course was $160 and I had $180 in my bank account and I signed, I signed up. And Who needs worse, food anyway, right? Exactly. <laughs> And worse than that, I had a credit card with a $1,000 limit and over the course of the 10 weeks, I spent $700 on essential oils. So I know, I know if my mother could have seen internet banking back then, I would have been in a power of bad trouble. But um, it was really cool because I... I don't know if I stood there and said, this is my life, this is my career, but I do remember standing there saying, I so want more of this. Mm. And I'm sure you can appreciate, the more I learned, the more I realised I didn't know. So that became three and a half years of of studying things like orthobionomy, homeobotanical therapy, um, reflexology. I did massage and sports therapy. And I just got really more and more into understanding the body and how we work and tick. And it was during that time I also got introduced to a gentleman called Cliff Young, who won the inaugural Sydney to Melbourne race at 60, 64, 65 years of age. Mm. And I was assigned to him and I used the oils with him. And then I got really bored watching this 24-hour race. And he said, what do you think? And I said, I said, it's the most boring thing on the planet. And he said, why don't you run one? And I thought, I'd much rather run one than watch one. So I filled out a form and ended up uh, entering a 12-hour and did a couple of years of ultramarathon running, ended up running for Australia. And I used my oils the whole way through. And I still, to this day, really believe that the oils were something that got me through those what we call graveyard shifts of running in the middle of the night, right through to um, graduating, right through to healing a skin condition that I had in my early 20s. So I think you could say, Alex, that I was born to essential oils and they have been with me ever since I was 19 years of age. I'm now 50. Wow. And so, hold on, like, uh, let's just go back there for a second. At how? Did, what were you doing before you decided to do a 24-hour race? Was that like a... I was looking after Cliffy, and mm-hmm. so I was a support member, and you sit in gotcha. a pit stop tent, and you watch people running around this 400-metre track, and look, it's tough. It's hard to watch. It's cold in the middle of the night, but you've got to stay awake for your runner. 
Um, and to be honest with you, having come from a love and a passionate background with netball, I probably am one of those people that would much rather participate in sport than watch it. So, mm. yeah, when he dared me, I thought, yeah, I might as well. And then ended up running and doing really well. I set a world record being the youngest female to run 100 miles in 24 hours. And then I ended up running for Australia and England and set eight Australian indoor records. So it was something that I didn't expect, but it was, yeah, I'm putting it down to the oils, Alex. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. And so... You know, that's those are some pretty huge physical achievements and I know you, you put it down to the oils, but, like, I'm just curious to know at some of the tougher times, those give-up times that you would surely experience in either training for something like that or actually doing a race that long. Um, yeah, what, definitely. What kind of moves you forward in those really, really challenging moments? You know, I, I've often done keynote presentations for corporates and different sporting events, um, and I call it the marathon of life, where doing those events really probably taught me at a very young age the metaphor for living. And you don't have to run an ultra marathon to understand that I believe life is an ultra marathon. We don't have to run. I'm quite long- relieved by that, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people say that. Um, but you can understand when I talk to you about what I call um, you know, pit stop moments where I, I quit those races so many times. It's embarrassing. Like I, it would be amazing to see how far I could have run if I didn't spend nearly four hours off the track complaining and whinging and wanting to quit and becoming a five-year-old throwing a tantrum. And I did all the things that athletes do when they are pushed to the brink. Mm. And I guess for me, there's a couple of things that I that I've shared in the book that really meant a lot to me, and and probably things quotes really mean a lot, and they help me. Where Cliffy came up to me in one of the events, and he always said to me, you know, remember it's ninety percent mental and ten percent physical, and mm. I think that applies to many, if not most, situations, be it relationships, motherhood business, any of those things, it really is around our mental aptitude Mm. and how we approach it. Because let's face it, everybody is going to have what we call, um, you know, chafing. We're going to have blisters. We're going to hit the wall. We're going to want to quit. We're going to have many times. It's metaphor central really, isn't it? Absolutely. And and so 90% mental, 10% physical was a big one. Another thing Cliffy said to me when I quit another time was, you know, winners finish, finishes win. And that actually really struck a chord with me um and then another one was the race is not always to the swift but to those that keep on running and I thought that was a really powerful analogy for me and so then I would find myself back out on the track mm-hmm. wanting to hit everybody because they told me I should be running mm-hmm. but then out there thinking about that quote and thinking how would I feel if I didn't finish you know they always say there's there's, there's pain in doing anything, but mm. is it greater than the pain of regret for not doing it or not finishing? Yeah. And that's probably something big for me. I'm quite competitive. I'm I'm very um, – and when I say competitive, I don't mean I have to beat anyone else out there, but I do like to know that I've given it my all, that I'm quite competitive within myself. Have I really given it 100% or could I have done better? Mm. And and that's probably something that always gets me back out on the track, metaphorically speaking, even in life when I get hit with big Mack trucks or, or moments that reduce me to my knees. I have always found a space in the agony 
to think, well, I've got a cho- I've got one of two choices. I can sit here and wallow in the agony, and rightly so. I can deserve I deserve to do that. It's painful. I'm not saying avoid that agony, but at some point, I then have to say, well, I can stay here and let this the story or this event define me, or I can let it help to expand me. And I know when we're in the throes of despair and the throes of challenge and things are really hurting, that the last thing you would ever want is someone to sit there and say, wow, here's a really wonderful opportunity for expansion, (laughs) or here's a great chance for you to grow. That's not what we want to hear, but it's in hindsight. I'm sure every one of us listening here would agree with me that in hindsight, when we look back on those tough moments, we actually know that they have refined us, they have expanded us, and we would not be the person we are today had they not occurred. Yeah, 100%. And actually quite early on in the book, you talk about a rather massive unravelling in your life and um, I think it really looked and felt like I could feel for you that it was a real rock bottom of sorts. And um, I'm wondering if you would share a little piece of that with us now. Mm. I, I guess the work for this book started around this time. I had started, I've, I've never been an event, you know, I'm not what you'd call a professional event manager or someone who is a professional writer. I don't think I'm actually naturally that great at it, but it takes a lot of effort. But one of my mentors in my early 20s said to me, you just have to go on an information gathering journey. So whenever you want to learn something or you want to create something, the best thing to do is to ask people who have done it and then gather all that information and then, you know, create what you would like to do with your interpretation of it. And I've I've loved that because then I've never felt like I've had to know it all or be it all. So I guess, you know, over a period of time and when I launched my own business and I was looking and realized that my business was all around self-care, I then started to question why people don't look after themselves very well. And so I started gathering information and asking people who were successful or asking people who seemed to have a happier disposition and asking people who I knew had been through tough times, what did they do to get through it? So for about three years, I took notes in this big scrapbook. And then I listened to people like Anthony Robbins, Martini. Um, I read books like Brandon Bay's The Journey. I followed the beautiful um, the work of Byron Katie and listened to a lot of Hay House authors and went to different Hay House events and Deepak and, you know, just tried to absorb as much as I could from people who were truly making a difference. Mm. And, and this book got fuller and fuller. And then, then this particular day, I got, you know, I got to experience what it would be like to put it all into action. And it was, you know, my husband had lost his sister to suicide tragically, and um, that had knocked his world like you wouldn't believe. And as I'm sure you could imagine. Mm. Um, and then on top of that, his career as an international cricketer had finished, and he was trying to carve a new pathway in the commentary and television media, which isn't easy. And as you could imagine, it can be very critical and very harsh. Oh, absolutely. Um, It's a very interesting time for sporting heroes to um, stop their active service on a team or as a as, you know, a tennis player, whatever type of a sport they play and then transitioning to that next phase of life. It's um, And who are know. they? Like you mm. say, like who are they without that behind them? And, and Danny went into a world of, I would like to say inquiry, but I would say more so it was the junk heap of life where he really battled, as I'm sure we've seen a lot of professional athletes 
do here in Australia and around the world where, you know, we, and when then we criticize them and judge them and, you know, and you look at them, but you know, and the one thing I've learned, unless you've walked in somebody's shoes, you cannot imagine or even for a minute presume what that would be like. So Danny was finding himself crumpling and as a consequence was still traveling around the world um, finding it more and more lonely. His analogy when it all came crumbling down was, yes, he was staying in five-star hotels. Yes, he was talking about a game he loved and traveling business class. And on the surface, it it sounds extraordinary. Mm. But but to him, every time he put his key in his hotel door, he actually felt like he was walking into a prison cell. And um, that was that was pretty confronting to hear him say that when our whole marriage came crumbling down at this particular point. I didn't know. He's, he's allowed me to share this story in the book that he'd got caught up in a world of drugs and alcohol. Of course, he'd come home to us and the children and it would be like a detox camp. And <laughs> I put his strange behaviour down to losing his sister and trying to find himself. I didn't know he was completely lost in a world of, of self-loathing and pain and, and anguish. And he didn't want to let me down. And I I don't say this lightly. I would imagine there's a lot of men, maybe women as well, but a lot of men who find I was going to say men, yeah, 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 just find it difficult, don't they, to, and I'm generally speaking, of course, but find it difficult to to share the pain or to let anyone see a sign of weakness or vulnerability and fear that it's seen as weakness. So Mm. I'm sure there's no accident that the majority of our suicides are, you know, men, Age, mm. between, you know, around that 35-year age, um, which is quite sad and, and horrifying, really. So, so for me, I did find myself on my bathroom floor. I thought what I had known my husband to be was no longer my marriage, which I thought was perfect, was in that moment over. I was about to launch my book, Like Chocolate for Women, and we needed thirty-five, forty thousand dollars to do that, and we just lost all our money in a property—not sorry—in a financial institution that had collapsed from the 2008 crash that oh, occurred good times. here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And my grandmother passed away the week before oh, um, we launched this. It was—you uh, actually couldn't have hit me harder with more things. Mm. And on top of that, of course, I'd left New Zealand. Um, my family were all back home. Danny and I had lost a house back there with a property deal that had fallen over with a whole leaky home problem that they'd had back in New Zealand. So, you know, in many ways when we were seeing a therapist, it was, you know, she she actually had tears in her eyes. You know, it was almost like we consoled her at one point. She oh, just couldn't God. believe how tough it was for us, you know. <laughs> wow. And, and I just realised in that moment that, yeah, there was a lot. And, and you know what, Alex, I as I share my stories and as I talk to people and they share their stories, you know, this is nothing to what some people go through. Mm. So I would not like to undermine my story, but I also would like to appreciate that we all have what I call Mack truck moments. We all have bathroom floor moments and some, yes, I guess we could gauge or level, but it doesn't really matter. They've, they've knocked us to our knees and we've wondered who the hell we are, what the hell this thing called life is all about, and why on earth are we here? Mm. And I think that's where, you know, I really started to question the work and how I could pull myself through it. And and I documented what I did to pull myself through that mm. and uh, through my journal. And, and then, you know, watching my children. I had a 10 and 11-year-old at the time, um, and, you know, they were both very – 
upset. They'd never seen me so broken. And I think, you know, being a mum and a dad, we all show our children that we've got the answers and we know what we're doing. And and so it can be quite confronting for children to see their parents either going through a breakup or in pain or losing money or losing jobs or losing their own parents. And I think what it highlighted for me is, and the reason why I've written this book, if I'm really honest, is to create, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a specialist, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but I do believe the conversation should be should be had and that we, we perhaps could be more open about our vulnerabilities and our, what I call our challenge moments, celebrate our champion moments, but also let's make it easier to talk about these challenging moments without people feeling like they have to fix them for the person because mm. I think really as we process ourselves through these, we do find the answers within, but be more of a supportive connector while someone's going through it. And, you know, there's that beautiful quote, a mother is only as happy as her saddest child. And I think for those of us that are parents, when we see a child that's hurting, it's very hard not to want to wrap them in cotton wool and fix it. But then we realise that it's through our most darkest times that when we come out of them, our most biggest growth occurs. Mm. And uh, I wrote in the book, one of the psychologists actually said why negative thinking or negative problems or negative things that occur in our life are far more impactful. There's a part of the brain that we actually dissect and assimilate the information much more powerfully when it's negative to what we do when it's positive. Mm. So there is actually a place for challenge in our lives and struggle. And I don't know about you, but I've never met anybody that hasn't had a struggle or a challenge or a fear or a self-doubt or a moment where they've even been brought to their knees. So, yeah, I'm figuring if it is part of life, why do we struggle so much with it then? Yeah, absolutely. It, it's such an in- – there's so much there that I want to um, dig into a bit more. I'm just trying to think of where I go. Let's talk about the, the child aspect, child seeing parent suffering because I think that's, um, you know, that's something that we try to avoid them seeing us suffering or broken but – you know, every now and then it's going to happen. And it's not only an opportunity for your own growth going through whatever hardship you're going through, but I guess we could also um, teach them to become more resilient through that whole process of seeing a parent suffering if we let them in enough. I think often we try and shelter our kids from everything that's hard or difficult. Um, And sadly, I think sort of, you know, the ex-gen um, tend to, to parent that way. Maybe it's because we're born of the self-help Oprah generation where we just want everything to be amazing and beautiful and perfect and fabulous. <laughs> but actually it's not, you know, and the baby boomers that, that wanted that for us, unfortunately maybe did us a disservice and made us a bit less tough and then we're now doing that to our kids as well. Yeah. So oh, Look, I, I agree with you and I, and I actually think that you – have opened a conversation here where it was very confronting for Danny and I when we sat mm. there with our counsellor and she sat there, she was French, she was in her 80s and um, she was a psychologist and she just said to us, because uh, I said, what about my children? And because at that point I didn't know if I wanted to stay with Danny either. I didn't know whether our marriage would last. And, and she said something very profound, which I think I wrote in the book. Um, she said, give it. I would like I would just like you to give it four seasons, four seasons for you both to process this and to work through it. 
Um, and when I asked her later, why did she say four seasons and not a year or 12 months or 52 weeks, she said that she believes that we all are more stronger in different seasons and sometimes they're not the same as our partner and so therefore to allow each other to shine and also to be lifted or carried through the seasons that were not so great. And just it was just a really lighter way of, I think, a really lighter way of saying something so interesting. The other thing she said was... Um, you do not need to hide this from your children. Mm. Um, so it was it was really quite interesting. She said, I'm not suggesting for a minute that as parents you dump on your children. That's what your friends and therapists and maybe your own parents are there for. But certainly it's not about airing dirty laundry or knocking people or actually acting in a very indignified way. But it's more about saying, you know, mummy is distraught right now and my heart is broken, but you just need to know that, that when mummy works through this, she will be back to herself and just a hug from you makes me feel better. Um, so our kids get scared when they see us hurting, but they also they get strength from seeing you rise above those hurts. Mm. And and I think that was the, the tool I took away from my therapist was, um, you know, really don't hide it because then they also can feel it. And if you are constantly someone saying, oh, no, everything's fine, they know it's not. They, they're not they stupid. Feel it. They've got better instincts than we do. Totally. Mm. And, and I think it's really important to be honest, but also with, with dignity and with refinement in a way that you will not be able to probably show them every ounce of everything. I don't think that's your job, but I do think it's important that they understand that life sucks sometimes. And in fact, the one thing Jacqueline said to me was, "You show you." do what I'm suggesting you guys do here, which is work on yourselves. Because she said, oh, her first question was, Danny, do you love this woman? And he said, of course. And she said, Kim, do you love this man? And I went, yes. And um, I was so cross. And she <laughs> said, when there's love, there is no problem. And, oh, that and, is and so I, French. It's so true. And I'm I nearly called Frenchy. the book back. That's so French. Oh, are you? Are you really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, you totally get that. When mm. there's love, there is no problem. Mm. And, um, and oh, when you it, think about the it. The Frenchies think the Americans make far too much of a fuss of all the details. Yeah, it's so it's funny. True. Yeah. It's true. Mm. Well, and she believed there's only two opposing forces in life, love and fear. Mm. And um, anyway, so when she said that to us, she just said, you know, so make sure that um, – that you work on yourself, Kim, and you work on yourself, Danny. Yes, your marriage will never be the same, but it could be better than it ever was. And I think that was the aha for me to go, yeah, life is never static. It's never always great and it's never always bad. Mm. But the challenge is how do we get through the bad or the challenges in order to rise above and then fully embrace and really enjoy life when it's great mm. um, and I think that was a, a very good lesson in fact some of us would say you know we might sit there going oh life's boring and then we're in agony and we'd give anything to have the boring back because pain is, is so harsh and hard especially heartache so um, I think it's about being present um, being very mindful that if you are in a great place right now just hug those loved ones tighter um, you know, send that beautiful text to a friend overseas or someone even close that you just love to say. My children and I, we send love notes to each other every night and Danny and I, he's away a lot and we always send our three things we're grateful for no matter where we are in the world 
in a text before we go to sleep, no matter what time it is. So Aww, there's just little things. Lovely. Yeah, my yeah. son and I do two things every every single night. And if um, I'm away for work uh, or he's away on school camp at the moment, like tonight, for example, we'll just send it in a recorded text message so that we still hear Aww. each other's voices saying our two Aww. things. And the first thing is always to say that I love you. And the second thing is always something we were really grateful for or that we just loved that happened in that day. And it's our non-negotiable sign-off from the day for each other. And I just, it just randomly happened, I think, when he was about two. And we, it then just kind of became something that we couldn't not do. Yeah. You know what? And when he becomes a parent, he'll, that'll be, isn't that, that that to me is legacy, you Mm. know. My mum and I used to do this. And then it's like, oh, that's carrying on a beautiful tradition and ritual from generation to generation that stuff makes differences Mm, it really does and in the book you talk about a a really tender moment where your son sort of basically was kind of uh comforting you but hilariously (laughs) doing it with the words straight out of one of his video games which I just thought was so fabulous (laughs) but I'm interested to know how you feel like or whether there was any active parenting that you've done in those early years that meant he was able to move straight into this really alert um observation of you needing the care and him stepping in to give that to you was there anything that you feel like you did as a parent to um, bring out compassion in your kids, um, you know, as they were mm. when they were really little people? I've, I've always been quite an open, honest parent. I've also, because I've had, you know, like yourself, I'm sure, have had many pains in life and felt the heart just hurting either through first love breakups or you know losing someone or a job not working out like we've had these moments in life where we've felt really hurt and really lost if you like and when I became a mum I didn't realize just how broken open I could become you know out of now being responsible for these these little people and every time they hurt themselves or did something I would never I, I read a lot I read a lot around parenting and a lot around um, and I guess we were lucky we had like you said the Oprah days and there was a lot of beautiful not saying that I was all about stars and, you know and rainbows and unicorns and it was all perfect <laughs> it was more like yeah sometimes that really does hurt and sometimes people do say mean things and I wonder why they said that mean thing and I'd, I'd question it and go do you think maybe they're having a bad day because you've said mean things when you're not really good and I've always tried to to give them that when people are awful it's usually not about you at all it's about what's going on in their world and at the same time if my kids have been awful it's also a sign for me to go on and check in what's going on you know like we only behave in in certain ways when we're being challenged or stressed or exhausted or sick or you know things aren't working the way we go so I've probably you know, if I'm really honest, I probably have looked back on myself, you know, I have not been asked this question before, but it's probably practicing those things on a daily basis because I've always thought, well, here, I can be honest with you, I didn't put this in the book, but I've always I've had a, a little quiet fear, and I hope this doesn't sound bad, but if I did die early, how would I know my kids would grow up resilient and not use that as a, and use it as a tool, not a weapon? Do you know what mm, I mean? Like, wow. how how do I know my children would be resilient and strong enough to deal with life when it 
throws heavy blows. Mm. So um, one of those was I'd always talk about the fact that no matter what, um, and I travelled a bit obviously with my work, so using essential oils, I would put a drop of lavender on Taylor's ducky or Jacob's blankie, and three nights before I'd go away, I'd say things like, you know, when it, when now let's take three deep breaths, and I'd take a piece of their clothing each, and I'd put a drop of lavender. I'd say, now, whenever we feel that little pang in our heart that we're missing mummy or I'm missing you, I'm going to inhale this T-shirt or this, um, you know, clo- piece of clothing of yours, Taylor, and I'm going to breathe it in. And then I know that that's nature's beautiful way of connecting me straight to you. Mm. And if I was really honest, it could be that that's the time that you've picked up ducky or blankie. And when you do that, you can almost picture me doing it when I'm in Australia or when I'm in New Zealand or when I'm in England. And and so it was always teaching them that I'm there in their heart, no matter even if I'm not there physically. Or mm. When Danny travels heaps, to know that you will get on in life if we're not there, and yeah. there's always people who love you. And so I think, I think maybe out of a, a silly fear, I guess, of what if I wasn't here or something happened to me, which I don't hold that. I didn't hold that for very long. I think it was just when I became a new mum, I felt so vulnerable about anything. Who would look after my children the way I would? I became very lionessy mm. <laughs> and very um, concerned as to who would look after me. It was actually filling out our wills that I had to decide if something happened to both of us, who, who had the right over my children. And I don't know, maybe it just made me really question what that was all about because I, I really wanted to give my kids tools when they're struggling. Now, Honestly, Alex, we've had moments where we've all fought. Jacob's walked out the door and called me every name under the sun. Um, <laughs> Danny and I have argued Yay, and she's slammed normal. doors. And <laughs> Taylor's cracked it and gone into her room and, and not speaking to anybody. So please do not think that there is anything abnormal about this. But maybe for me it's it's when those moments happen, to give it a moment there's no point lecturing, I've learnt, especially with a son, there's no point lecturing him in the moment of anger because it goes in one ear and out and then la, 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 he doesn't give a rat's. Mm. And with Jacob, it's really short and to the point. And I was told, you know, as a mum, boys love nothing more than, a, than from their mother's silence and laughter And mm. as a teenager. And mm. I thought, oh, okay, because I do... I do tend to go in for the kill, you know. <laughs> I, yeah, tell them everything that's wrong, you know. And, yeah, um, yeah. I um, saw Steve Biddup talk recently, yes. and um, and he talks about just let that dust settle. Don't don't say it's actually best not to talk at all. Yep. Yeah. And I think that was the the, the thing of advice: be silent and laughter. They like to hear that. And mm. so, yes, my love, we. It's just it's we're all a work in progress, and yeah, as far are. as I'm concerned, we can either. You know, we could stand here and say, I am the way I am because my father left my mother, or I am the way I am because I was abused, or I am the way I am because um, you don't understand. It's because, you know, I got, you know, beaten up and was bullied at school. Now, I'm not undermining any one of those things, and I really would love to think that the world was all daisies and, and sunflowers and that none of us had to go through horrible times. But the reality is these things do occur, And as Jacqueline said to me, I want you to draw a line in the sand and place what's happened in the past. You cannot change that. You cannot. Um, But you do have a chance right here and now to make decisions that will enhance 
alter and create a better future for yourself as well, rather than living in the past and carrying that baggage and using it as a weapon and a default and a and a place to blame or mm. deny or not take responsibility. And yeah. I think that's the big thing. And it, it actually takes us really nicely into um, – talking about Don Miguel's four non-negotiables that you bring up in the quite early on in the book and I wanted to talk about two of them and one is just like the perfect flow on from what we were just talking about which is don't take anything personally (laughs) very interesting very challenging especially in the age of social media and you know internet keyboard ninjaing and all those you know it feels like we don't even just have to deal with our real life situations where we might feel that we need to take something personally but any little random uh online comment from some some horrible little big nose you know just being negative or whatever but don't take anything personally is a huge challenge um and yet it's one of his non-negotiables can you talk about why you were inspired by those non-negotiables why you included them in in the book and how you've um come to maybe uh work on not taking everything personally yourself it's it's a biggie and I and he even says in the book and I think I reiterated it if we lived by these four principles alone um, there would be no war there would be no um, there'd be there'd be ways that we work through conflict and we'd work things out much more harmoniously and probably graciously so the first one yes do not take things personally the second thing you know don't make assumptions ask questions the third thing is um, you know make sure that um, Oh, God, I've just gone blank. Hang on. And the last one's always do your best. I don't know why I've just gone blank with number three. I say it so many times. Um, it'll come to me in a second. But That's going okay. back to your first question, um, don't take things personally, is the most incredible thing. So when it happens, for me, now I don't know if you're the same, Alex, but when I get a horrible comment on Facebook or even my children, like when they're little, I hate you, um, you know, or your partner saying something, you know, why'd you do that? Or, you know, just anything. When we take it personally, we take it to mean that we are wrong rather than that's the person's observation. It's up to us whether or not we believe it. Mm. Now, sometimes we may be being an idiot. Now, if that's the case and someone says to you, don't be an idiot, if you've taken that personally, but then you've addressed it and you've looked and you thought, actually, I was being an idiot, then the best way to quickly complete that is an apology. I'm really sorry for being an idiot. I was tired or I was hungry or I was, you know, I had no right or whatever it is. So again, it's diffuse. So I'm not saying we have to be perfect here, but by not taking things personally, when I get that feeling in my stomach, when it's become and I know that I don't know if you get it too but oh my tummy or you want to go and be a keyboard warrior back or you want to write an email and say oh you wait or you know when you get those feelings or send that text back um, that to me is you've now taken it incredibly personally and if you can just step out of it and picture it and here's something another therapist gave me a way to deal with this particular one was if someone says to me god you're an idiot then what I do internally when I feel that feeling in my tummy is I look back at them and picture they're standing there pointing to me going, I'm an idiot. God, I'm an idiot. Um, Because often if you're calling someone, let's say, oh, I hope I can say this, but let's say someone was being a dickhead on the road Mm. and you yelled out, you're a dickhead. 
um, <laughs> my question back to you is, have you ever been dickhead on the road? Mm. And most of us at some point usually have been. Yeah. So is it fair to call someone else that when you yourself have done it rather than, oh, thank goodness we didn't have an accident? Now, I'm not saying that's easy, but to not take something personally either puts it back in their court or you real, or it's a chance for you if it really has hurt you is there some work for you to do on yourself? Is there yeah. something you could have done better? And I think that's a much more curious, much more empowering way to look at a personally driven comment than turning it into a feud and and it becoming a tit for tat, you said, he said, I said kind of thing. Mm. So I love that. Don't take things personally. Mm. I, I love um, it too. And I think it's one of those – for me, it often represents a time of personal growth. Like overcoming the idea that I should take it personally in itself. Mm. And sometimes it actually forces me to think um, in a less black and white way about something I may have thought about in a black and white way before that person made that comment. Um, So I use it as a way to open up my mind and challenge myself to do that. And it's not easy, but I really do believe it's like a muscle, isn't it? And you just work it and you, you get stronger at it. Yes, mm. yes. I love it. And and I think, um, oh, I know. It, actually, the number one thing of his four agreements is be impeccable with your word. Oh, that comes yes. With, yeah, that yeah. comes before the don't take things yeah, personally. Yeah, yeah. And, and that has made me very aware of how I speak. You know, so if I did call someone a dickhead, <laughs> that's not very impeccable, is it? So, no. <laughs> So, you know, already I've just broken rule number one, yeah. which then means I'm going to take it personally. I'm not I'm not going to make assumptions and think that they were out to get me and, you know, and I'm not going to give my best. So you can see those four agreements are incredibly um, a great way to do what I call the work. Keep mm. working on yourself. And it, it's just a mindful thing, isn't it? Something you'll be mindful of. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the one that really jumped out at me, um, is the never make assumptions um, because, mm. you know, so often we're just not brave enough to ask questions or we're not um, – uh, we, we just assume that we know what's going on. So I, I see this all the time in, in the children's food education work that I do with Brenda on the Thrive course and, you know, and I see it in motion everywhere because I've taught that course six times now. Over 2,000 parents have done it. I carry the work that we do in that course with me everywhere. You just can't help but observe things that happen. And I was at my nephew's birthday. It was a three-year-old's bar, sort of like a little um, morning tea in the park. And I was cutting up the sushi that my mother-in-law had made and, and arranging it on the plate. And a little hand comes up to the sushi and a mama um, you know, and this is not a judgment of the mama. This is just an illustration of the point of assuming um, just flicks his hand away and goes, you won't like that, sweetie, um, simply because she'd never offered him sushi before. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I just thought, wow, you know, here's another example of where we're just assuming instead of inviting. You know, imagine if instead of assuming we invited dialogue um, and every time we were tempted to assume, we stopped ourselves and invited a dialogue um, you know, you assume your husband's upset with you or you assume, you know, I've, I've done that a couple of times and then I've said, are you upset at me? And he'll say, no, no, I'm just watching this Land Rover video and it's really serious because this guy nearly got 
overturned on the cliff and um and that's why my face looks like this right now and I didn't hear what you said and you'd be like oh oh <laughs> there I, I was mean, circling drinking around wine thinking, in the kitchen why is thinking he marriage is over me? <laughs> but just I mean that's a funny example but like imagine some of the bigger things that we assume where some really juicy conversations might need to be happening but um we're know, not it's even... even simple things isn't it like in this, it must be so hard in this generation where, you know, texting and everything is so instant, right? So I've even done it myself. I've texted somebody. It might be maybe it is a little bit controversial or a little bit challenging and they haven't answered straight away. So then I start assuming that they're really angry with me. Mm. And then you start building up the story that they're not, oh, my gosh, they still haven't answered. Now, you don't know that they're in a meeting for an hour with no phones or you don't know that their battery's flat or you don't know – but we now have this whole internal dialogue making all these, like you say, assumptions around what's going on, and it's nothing. Yeah. So that's why the, that agreement is ask questions, don't make assumptions. So, you know, you saying, are you angry with me? You cleared it up. You cleared it up by him telling you he's watching a Land Rover movie video. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's just a little window into my life. Oh. Um. <laughs> Into women's lives. We make all these stories and these men are just exhausted. I, I read somewhere that we have to get through, you know, 22,000 communicative gestures and words a day. They, theirs is 7,000. Mm. And often they come home from work and they don't say much. And we've had the kids all day. We've only spent 3,000. Holy heck, we've got another 18,000, 19,000 to go. And they're, they're spent. And it could be as simple as that, that they're just yep. tired. Women and need to just catch up with more women. Yes. We really do. Yeah, to, yeah to, I agree. To do that. And we can't expect mm. to get everything from our men um, if we choose men as a partner, that is. but um, That's true. Yeah, it's uh, it's a really interesting thing. And I think this whole, I mean, you know, we could, I feel like we're going on these awesome little philosophical tangents about life in general but um, <laughs> and how society has kind of shaped us up to be these tiny little nucleuses that barely ever interact with anyone outside of our tiny family nucleus and to think that a man and a woman can be everything for each other um you know that's so rare that that happens you'd be one in i don't know i don't even know what the stats would be but you know we there's so many things that fill our cups up and couldn't um, agree more yeah um now speaking of um men you had an experience with your 16 year old son jacob (laughs) and it was a uh, you don't mention what that experience was, and I'm not going to ask you to do that mm-hmm. here, but suffice it to say it was a big one and he stuffed mm-hmm. up big time and he yep. knew he had. And I just love the scene that you paint where he's he just he slips into your room just before you guys are going to bed and kind of takes you through it. And it sounds like it was the kind of situation where a very typical and understandable response might have been, how the F could you have done such a thing? And, you know, to really fly off the handle at him. But you did something very different and I was so inspired by it. And I was like, I'm just going to file this away for the teenage years because they're still ahead of me. Um, And you explained really calmly while stroking his head that he'd fallen out of love with himself. And I feel like this is where you start to paint the um, the the picture of what the rest of the book is going to be from this one mm. situation with your son. Can you talk to me about how, as a parent, you were able to um, to sort of arrive at that as your instinct on how to work through this issue? 
So remember I'd been um, documenting how people get through tough times Mm. and I'd been flirting with what I call the self-love circle and I kept trying to – I'm somebody – Maybe it's because I was an athlete, but I'm somebody who likes to know the steps or the process to get to somewhere. So if I want to get from here to here, how do I do that? And then how do I apply it and then get on and do it? Yeah. So a well, little athletes bit... are very good at reverse engineering, right? Yes. Mm. And, and exactly, I kept thinking, so when we feel bad, it's all very good and well to say you've got to love yourself, but how? And even that film Embrace, which I loved, mm. I don't know if you saw it, you know, that beautiful one who did the book before and after the photo. Did you see I, that I film? didn't see it, no. It was a beautiful film where the picture of her beforehand was a body sculptor before and afterwards with a mum, a little bit more weight on her, still beautiful, but just very interesting. And it got huge, massive following. And she ended up creating a film called Embrace. And I was asked to speak at one of the launches and watch the film. And I remember sitting there, this wasn't long before Jacob, the Jacob scene. And I remember thinking, this is such a great film. For me personally, I kept looking for the how. How did she get to that? How how was this just where was the distinction made that it didn't matter? You didn't have to be a body sculptor to be beautiful and all of this sort of thing. Now it could have been there and it, I'd like to watch it again, but I just in that moment I was going, How, how, how? So when Jacob was lying on the end of my bed when he came in and honestly to see your sixteen year old son so wounded and so broken and and so angry it's it's tough and um he the fact that he even came into our room I could see how broken he was sometimes as Jacqueline always said to us you've got to hit rock bottom before you can come back up Mm. so he sat on the end of the bed and and yes he'd made a huge mistake around social media and at school and you know, but was dead and and did silly things and and look Jacob isn't what I'd call a you know, a, a, a terrible person, and most of these kids aren't. Not, not many of them are. No, but that doesn't head. stop us good old humans mm. from making mm. terrible choices every now and then. <laughs> Thank you. Mm. And um, so anyway, I, I, I so want, don't get me wrong, I want it, it took all my will not to turn into a lecturing, you bloody idiot. Mm. It really did. But I could see he was really that broken and vulnerable that he was ready to hear something different. And how can we learn? How do we learn from our mistakes? And so I drew a big heart in the middle of the piece of paper and I said to him, Jacob, you know how there's only two emotions really that we that we govern our behaviour from? One is love and one is fear. And he just looked at me and I said, you've just been operating out of a place of fear. And fear occurs when we don't believe in ourselves or we don't know ourselves or we don't trust ourselves. And you've made a mistake. So you've fallen into a place of fear or hate or guilt or loathing. It doesn't matter what it is. You've gone there and you've operated out of that place. Do you think we're going to make great decisions when we're sitting in that place? And so he could feel that I wasn't going to say you're an idiot. I Mm. was trying to explain why we do these things. And because he'd watched Danny and I go through tough times with our marriage, I felt that he knew that I was talking from experience about how do we, you know, get up, out, over and through these times. And he just looked at me and then I said, darling, I'm going to draw you a picture of what I think it is. Do you want to look at this? And he just said, yeah. So I had this picture of the heart with self-love in the middle of it. And then I drew an arrow coming down to the bottom left and I a big arrow going down. I said, this is the fear part. This is the self-sabotage, the self-guilt. When we fall out of love, we fall down here. And I said, yeah. And I said, but you know what? The best way to get back into flow, into the love circle, is to be aware that you're there. So if you can just be aware right now 
that you are in a bad place, you're already back in the path to self-love. So if you stay in the path of victim and it's not fair and how come and hate my life, you are not aware enough yet to get back out of it. So you might just need some coaching or support or you might need someone to help you a bit more out of that place. So the first step back in is self-awareness. And then I said the next step is self-care. You've got to do, no matter what goes on in life, if we do not take care of ourselves, especially when we're going through challenge, then we can get sick, we can get run down, and then we make even worse decisions. So the first thing I'm going to invite you to do is to make sure every day you do a run, you go to the gym, you do something. And of course, being a boy, he's got a lot of testosterone, a lot of energy. And I said, even if you walk bare feet down to our beach and back again, can you promise me that? And he looked at me, didn't say anything. And then I said, well, the third step is self-discipline. So you can't do self-care without discipline. And it takes discipline to look after yourself. So one of the other things I'm going to invite you to do around self-care is you are not allowed to swear at a teacher for the next 28 days. Can you do that? Mm. And he looked at me and I said, that's the that's the discipline I'm going to ask for, which will be caring for yourself. It will be caring for your words. So that's a form of self-care. And he looked at me and then I said, now this is the doing side of the of the of the circle. Awareness, self-care, and self-discipline. This is all the work, the doing. I said, but Jacob, if you promise me to do it for 28 days, then you'll find that you'll have better self-control. And we know when we have better self-control, we feel better about ourselves. We have leads to the next thing, which is self-respect. And Jacob, what does someone look like with self-respect? And he just looked at me and he he said, I don't know, but by this stage, his sister was in the room and she was a year and a half older and she said, oh, I don't know, I think it's someone that, you know, they they care about how they look and feel, they take pride in their appearance, they, they seem to care about the planet, they don't gossip about people, they don't put people down, they don't be nasty, they apologise, they can forgive. I don't know, Mum, there's someone that they seem to respect themselves, each other and the planet. And I looked at Jay and I thought, geez, and I actually wrote that in the book because I thought that was a really good answer. <laughs> and um, anyway, and so, you know, he, he agreed. And then I said, and then with self-respect, we have self-acceptance. And self-acceptance means we love ourselves for our constraints, our weaknesses, our vulnerabilities and our flaws. But we also love ourselves for our strengths, our capabilities, our opportunities and for who we truly are and our potential. And then I looked at him and I said, and guess what? You could get three weeks into this and swear at a teacher and storm out of the, t- the classroom again and you've fallen out of the circle again. But guess what? The minute you're aware you've done that and you can forgive yourself and apologise, you're back in the circle. So I'm not asking for you to be perfect or for you to be the perfect boy who's always going to never make a mistake again. I'm just asking you to have awareness around the fact and be mindful of your emotions and then use the work the, the, the awareness, the care and the discipline to therefore have better control, respect and acceptance. And he just looked at me and he said, Mum, you've got to get this stuff out there. I've never heard anyone talk about it like this. And it was in that moment Danny grabbed my hand and squeezed it and I knew I had to write this book. Mm. That was three years ago. Wow. So, yeah, yeah. so that's how that happened. Mm. And you have it as a circle in the book, these mm-hmm. six steps of self-love. Um how, I mean, obviously Jacob's example there, you know, you, you call that literally falling out of love with yourself and operating from fear instead. Mm-hmm. Um, how, might, how else might we know that we're, that we're not on the, the self-love track? 
oh gosh, do, are you ready? Yeah, I'm yeah. Give Just it, give us some is... some really common things that you've observed or felt in yourself. Okay, so someone might have done one of your programs, and yet they still spray, um, they still have a ambi plug thing in their in their door at home and they know they shouldn't have it but they just oh they're not sure that is a small example of I guess the self-sabotaging a little bit of guilt might come in there but you kind of like you know you should but you shouldn't so when you know you should be doing better when you've been given the information but you're not acting on it that is a place of of self-sabotage not doing the work people that are on a protocol or a diet or a gym program and then they go and eat pizza and drink three bottles of wine um that's falling out of love with ourselves yelling at our kids is is not coming from a place of love um, being abusive in our words or being awful to somebody on the phone because they've stuffed up, um, screaming at somebody in the car park is a form of, of, of falling out of love with ourselves. Um, perhaps it could be something like, um, you know, eating something that you know is not good for you. Some people know that they shouldn't eat gluten, but they refuse to give up bread and then they feel yuck and then they have bad mood swings and then they get cross and then they end up falling out of a relationship and they they blame the relationship. But in fact, they've not taken responsibility for their own health and wellness or their self-care. So there is pretty much every form of self-sabotaging behavior. Guilt, mother guilt, father guilt, that's a classic you know, you've said something to your children, you feel bad. Um, instead of saying, sorry, mummy just made a mistake, I was tired, no excuse, I shouldn't have done that, I just want you to know that I'm going to work really hard not to do that again and I hope you can forgive me, as opposed to carrying that guilt. And then and then I tell you, if you keep carrying that guilt as they become teenagers, they will look for that Achilles heel and they will use that against you. So, mm. so you know, there's all these things. It is such – I don't know if you can feel it. I, I felt it writing the book. Being a human is a massive experience. Um, it is such a, it's such a ebb and flow. There is so much good and so not good, and it is all just this major. I guess it's a dichotomy in life where we have such extremes. We have struggle and joy. We have hate and love. We have light and dark, and it's how we navigate through those so it's not saying avoid them or that we'll never feel like I, I i bet i could ask you honestly alex have you ever worried about how good you are or not good yet have you ever felt like you're not good enough oh <laughs> <laughs> uh five minutes ago four hours ago <laughs> yesterday last week of course yeah exactly. i have unashamedly makes- admitting that and I, I i bet most people would but what makes you so inspirational and so incredibly inspiring to all of us who follow you is that, first of all, you're open about that. But secondly, you're obviously a person who can apologize for that sometimes. And thirdly, you're a person who's not going to stand there and be trodden on. And you're willing, and I put the story in the book, to man or woman the hell up mm. and, you know, be courageous, be strong. We're going to make mistakes, but we're also going to admire those that I don't know if you've ever met people in your life that have had major problems and what's so admirable isn't so much the problem but it's how they rise above out through and still have a place and capacity to still love that to me is one of the most inspiring parts of the human race Mm. is to see people become better not bitter and to really value um, that the experiences that are given to us in life and 
I hope I don't sound too woo-woo here, but I have a belief that they are given to us as opportunities for us to to grow and expand, to become. You think about it when you when you've gone through a tough time, you have more compassion. We we experience suicide in our family, and I can honestly say I have such compassion and empathy for other people now that have been through that. Hundred mm, percent, um, we have as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, mm. and and you don't realise it when you're in it. And I'm not suggesting if anyone's listening to this and they're in a world of pain that my words will be easing in any way. But I will say this to any single person listening to this, um, going through a tough or a challenging time, this too shall pass. You will get through this and you will find another day where the sun will be shining and you will embrace it and you will smile and you won't cry. And you know that with time and with absolute discipline around giving yourself that time to get through up and over this that you will get through it a much bigger better and more beautifully compassionate person than you were before it but make no mistake those of us in a good place in our life there could be more challenges to come Mm. so the resilience that I talk about in the book is making sure you take care of yourself on a daily basis eat beautiful foods, listen. I mean, you are such a trailblazer in this space for us to make sure we at least eliminate as many toxins and chemicals that can affect our behaviour and our moods and our emotions. That is such a massive part of self-care. It's making sure we do daily movement. Um, You don't have to be a gym junkie or run ultra marathons or do anything. Just walking barefoot out to the to the letterbox and then coming back and you know I my grandmother always said do 20 squats before you go for a pee um you know just make sure you know that that's always a way she says one of the biggest things that would be awful to lose is the ability to squat on a toilet um as you age and she said there's nothing worse than having to be helped to go to the toilet so Mm. you know just those are all acts of self-care that might seem very insignificant and little. I call them micro moments. And if you don't have time to meditate and or it's hard for you, just remember just being mindful while you're cooking and looking when you slice a tomato in half and notice the four chambers and look at the seeds and wonder the farmer who grew that. That to me is, a, is an act of meditation because you're fully present to that beautiful piece of fruit right in front of you. And oh, I totally agree. Can I give you a hilariously small yes. example of this? Um, I um, upgraded water filters recently and I finally got my dream benchtop Waters Co. water filter. Um, and I'll put that in the show notes for anyone who goes, what, what water filter are you using? Hold on. What, what brand was that? Because that, that <laughs> happens sometimes. But it is the water is actually delicious. It's amazing. and um, But the flow of the tap is a bit slower than the one that I had before. So it means if you're trying to fill the kettle for three or four cups of tea, um, when there are a couple of people over or it's our team Tuesdays, it takes a couple of minutes. And, you know, I caught myself going, oh, God, this is so annoying, you know, the first time that happened. And then I thought, oh, this is something I want. So remember that you wanted this and it's the best water filter. And now actually use this time for a little pocket of slow and watch the water going into the kettle and just breathe. And like, so that means at least two, three times a day during an otherwise really busy day, I'm just hanging out, breathing. How? (laughs) That is so cool. And it's an act of meditation. That's right. Meditation is everywhere. And if we stop thinking it has to be this thing where we cross our legs and we get ourselves set up and, 
you know, and then give away 20 minutes that we don't have, then maybe we'll actually find some success. I know. I love that. I think it's a great example. And the minute I wrote, read the book, Happiness Now, I think by Thich Nhat Hanh, Mm. a Tibetan Buddhist monk, he talked about this. And that was my aha a number of years ago because I used to beat myself up that I wasn't meditating. And then when I did sit down and meditate, I go, oh, my God, I've got to do this. I've got to do that. And then I'd get really frustrated. And it was like, he just gave me that moment. It's micro moments of mindfulness. Absolutely. Um, Now, so... You say that there are six basic steps and obviously we could talk for hours but I don't want to um, keep people too long and I I want to encourage people to get the book. But um, of all the six steps of of your beautiful art of self-love, which is your favourite? Self-care. I mean, if all else fails, looking after yourself, putting on a diffuser, um, making a beautiful meal, going for a walk, um, texting a beautiful friend, picking up the phone, going to a movie, you know, all the aspects of uh, self-care to me is the pathway to self-love. Mm. It, you know, if we, you can tell when people look after themselves, um, there's just, there is a different energy about them as opposed to people who grind themselves into the earth, you know, as in working long, long hours, don't eat well, coffee upon coffee. I mean, the body is incredibly resilient and incredibly resourceful. And for a lot of people, you might look at them and think, how can they look so good when they don't look after themselves? But at some point, I can assure you the body will crash. There is no way we can keep pushing and pushing and pushing the way some people do without it. Why do people die so early? Why is cancer so prolific? Why are we questioning the work that people like yourself and I do now where we're wanting to know those little things that we can do to make it a little bit better for ourselves because we cannot control everything that goes, as we know, into our water. And I love the fact that you've got that particular filter. I love that filter. And it's good, it's isn't the, it? Oh, yeah. Those little steps mm-hmm. are what I call, that's an act of self-care to me. So if there was one, and I realise that's what my business is founded on, that's what this book was all about because if I can teach or support or encourage you or remind you to look after yourself, you're going to fill that beautiful love tank um, with that care and therefore you have more to give to others, which is the ultimate act of kindness and care that therefore when someone else is going through a tough time, you can be this person that I'm talking about right now for that person. Mm. But if you're a mess and you're not well and you're not looking after yourself, then almost becomes a competition about who's got the worst life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's not serving humanity at all. Oh, well, we've so. all been in those conversations. Oh, yeah, that happened to you? Well, look at what happened to me this week. And, you know, that's just, yeah. But- and you know what, to be honest, and also self-care, hmm. is if you turned up to me and I said to you, I'm having a really bad time and you knew and I'd, I don't know, I was in a tough time and you arrived with a bottle of wine and a beautiful gluten-free I don't know, you made a gluten-free pizza or something and we sat down together. That, to me, is a form of self-care. I'm not mm. saying you have to be a goody two-shoes and eat yeah, kale it's not chips. About, and... Yes, exactly. It's not about a green smoothie, doing yoga <laughs> yes. on a hill and no other form of self-care exists because that's the perfect version. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, mm. yeah. yeah. 
And and maybe we should do that anyway one day. I'm just saying. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> well, it'll be it'll be gin and soda for me because I can't Thank do you. histamine on my mold no. recovery road. But um, actually, I was going to ask you about that because I find that I I feel really funny. Is that what blocks your nose and everything when you're having wine? Because I much prefer a, a, a tonic, you know, vodka tonic as opposed to something like that too. Yeah, I, I have kind of for about. 10 years been like that and and Mm. it's just made me feel a bit headachey and a bit but really the underlying thing there was that I had inflammation from mold so that gives you the propensity to be affected by histamines in foods or in the air or you know I'd never had hay fever or any of those sorts of stuffy sinusy issues before living in a water damaged building yes and I think you know a form of self-care is doing programs like yours and that's Mm. the discipline the discipline is then applied to it to learn this information and then go on your own self-discovery, biohack your own body, mm. go to different things. I think it's what you are offering this planet is a form of self-care and self-discipline. And oh, that's thanks, where Kim. oh, it truly is. And that's where I love all the group of people that we we seem to be a beautiful group of people that are all in the same hub doing different, coming from different angles. But really the people that you look up to and the people that you follow and I'm sure your listeners follow other amazing um, leaders and thought um, providers and and trailblazers and it's the work that they do and why we all put on programs as a form of discipline and and a form of self-care so I I think it's it's a beautiful tribe to be a part of. I mm. certainly feel very honoured to be in here. Oh, and I think you know, discipline has um, had a negative connotation for so long, but I really uh, had a bit of an enlightened moment a few years ago where I realised that with g- discipline actually comes joy. Yes. Um, and, you know, if you actually it, it kind of like wanting to stop using single-use plastic bags, the, 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 the ticker that finally happens is you disciplining yourself and saying, actually, you know what, I don't get to say just this one time anymore. Yeah. And then you finally reach the joyful realisation that it was discipline that was um, standing between you and your goal. <laughs> and how cool yeah i know and i mean you could extrapolate that across a thousand examples over all sorts of aspects of everyday life mm-hmm. um, i love it now because you are such a talented aromatherapist i'm going to pick your brain as we come to an end here on um favorite most useful um single oils for um uh, let's go let's start with guilt because often the whole self-sabotage thing has quite a huge element of guilt in there doesn't it and you know because you you want something but then you do the opposite of it and then you kind of say well I didn't deserve it anyway and (laughs) I I suck because I'm just not you know going to be good enough to do that what oils can we turn to at times like that well, you know, if, if you don't have any of the following oils that I'm talking about, you yourself know that we're both passionate advocates for essential oils. And even if you reached for one of your favourites, it's the act of putting them in your diffuser, doing a body boost, doing an aromatic shower, having a bath, making a spritzer. The act of that, the breath, the intent, because remember plants, these extracts have such a vibrational energy. They're, they're, they're beautiful products from nature. They are gifts from nature and therefore they resonate very powerfully with our connection to nature. And 
I, I would love to say, I mean, I've been an aromatherapist for nearly 30 years, so I've delved quite deep in this book into giving, at the end of each chapter, a couple of suggestions. So when I really think of guilt and the feelings you get with guilt, for me, there was a couple of oils that come up, and one of them is clary sage. And clary sage is a beautiful euphoric oil. It's an oil that gives you, if you've ever had champagne and you've had those first couple of mouthfuls and you get that, oh, that kind of like, <laughs> oh, that feels nice. Um, that is, we call clary sage the champagne of essential oils. The minute you inhale it and smell it, you get that, oh, that feels nice. It lifts your mood instantly. And let's face it, when we're feeling guilty, we're feeling very yuck in our tummy and probably a little bit like, It is a yuck feeling, over. isn't it? Oh, That's the perfect horrible. word for guilt. Yuck. Oh, it really is. So, you know, let's have some clary sage champagne. And I think it's a beautiful oil. Um, to support you if you're feeling most times guilt comes with overwhelm or shame or um, feeling like you've you've irritated somebody or you've upset somebody. So clary sage is a very good oil for lifting that. Another favorite is cardamom for guilt. Mm. Cardamom is one of those beautiful spicy oils. It's got a very gorgeous um, light but very warming sensation. It's the oil for when you're feeling like your life's in a rut or when you're feeling a little bit beaten up. Um, most of the time when we feel guilty, it's because we feel like we haven't been good enough or we've let someone down. Um, this is the oil for judgment, which usually comes with guilt. Um, and it's also a really good oil to help, you know, eliminate our fears or our worries. So, again, using that is a is a powerful oil to to support us through those times of guilt. And my other favourite for guilt is lavender. I mean, lavender to me is like the mother hug of all the oils. <laughs> if there was no oil that you didn't – sorry, if there was one oil to have in your repertoire, to me it would be lavender. It is your dream mum in a bottle. It gives you a hug. It's the protection, uh, protecting oil. It's very soothing and calming. And one of my lovely favourite anchors with this oil is when you're feeling guilty because it's that horrible feeling in your gut. I put one drop on my hand, place my right hand with that oil onto my tummy where I'm feeling the guilt, and then I, I put the other hand on my heart and I just take three deep breaths. And just that helps our beautiful parasympathetic nervous system to just open up, to calm, and to stop that stress response. Restorative breathing and adding in essential oils is one of the most powerful ways to stop those emotions or feelings or moods. Breath is probably very underestimated. Add to that the power of something like a potent essential oil and you create an aromatic anchor and a beautiful pathway for it to cross the blood-brain barrier affect the sympathetic nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system, and we have a biochemical physiological reaction within three to four seconds. So to me, using oils is a really beautiful way to do something. You could do it without the oils, of course, but it is a way to actually do something. Often when we're in pain, it's the doing of something that helps us get out and get up. So to me, doing essential oils, if that's mm. the right word, is the act to get you up out of bed, to get you up off the floor, to get you into the car. Like, to me, the oils become your girlfriend. They're, they're right there beside you. Yeah, I love that analogy. I think that's that's brilliant. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, obviously we haven't been able to talk about the six basic steps, but the last question I'd like to ask you today or sort of ask for clarification on so that people kind of understand uh, a little bit more into just how juicy this book is going to be uh, is that you talk about 
Well, you talk about three of the steps being about doing the work and the other three being about being the work. Um, and I'd love to hear what you um, want to share about what that means. Well, like I just said before in the, in sharing the story with Jacob, I actually yeah. have covered this for you. So, you know, like remember we've fallen out of the circle. Yeah. We're in self-sabotage. First step is self-awareness, awareness that I'm actually feeling this bad, awareness that I'm guilty, awareness that I've eaten the – I've face-planted the chocolate cake, awareness that I'm still using a deodorant that's got lots of chemicals. Whatever the awareness is, you're back in the circle. The yeah. next step is self-care. So now we do something better for ourselves. I'm, it might be a green smoothie. It might be I take on a protocol. It might be that I enrol in a three-year degree to do my to become a, a, a protection environmental protection person. It might be um, that I am going to for the next 28 days, like I said to Jacob. Part of that is self-care was to not swear at a teacher. So that but then instantly leads into the discipline. So now we've got to apply the discipline to that self-care. So that is the doing. Mm. And then, of course, when we practice that and why I say 28 days is we know it takes 28 days to create a habit, mm. that it takes the mind physiologically and neurologically those 28 days to create stronger neurochemical loops to override the ones that keep reducing us or weakening us. So with that comes self-control, which leads to the next step, which is self-respect, which leads to the last step, which is self-acceptance. And those to me, and I go into more detail in the book about those six steps and the oils that you can use for all of them. And I share personal stories in there around each of the steps that hopefully that will help ignite. You know, I've had people read the book say, that even though they're reading my story, it's brought up a lot of emotion and some of it beauty and some of it has, you know, shown that there's some work to be done. Um, they've, it's brought them to tears, which I didn't expect, or it's it's helped them really address their own pains and anguish. Or as some of them have said, I didn't realise how out of love I was with myself and how hard I've been on myself. So that really is the six steps, my darling. And, and I really, I'm not saying it's the only way to love yourself, but it became a practical tool for my children and it's become a very positive guide for me and it's given me the the pathway or the 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 path to follow something and like I said before with my athlete mentality I probably like a plan Mm, and um, so it may not suit everybody but it certainly gives you a place to be disciplined around your own love because at the end of the day here's the thing nobody is going to love you like you should Mm. nobody is also going to take away that love like you could So really the battle, the internal demons and warriors and and problems that we have are between ourselves. But then I go, who are we talking to when we're calling ourselves something nasty? Or who's saying it? I mean, that's an interesting conversation in itself. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So to me, it's like, well, if we're talking to each other like that, then we can certainly say, come on, let's go and get a bottle of lavender. Let's make a spritzer. Let's go and have an aromatic bath. Let's go and – now, you still might be in tears, you know, it took me a year to work through what I did with my husband. And, you know, we, we both committed to going to therapy. We both committed to working on ourselves. We both knew that there was still going to be bad, dark days. But we also drew a line in the sand and said we'd not bring up the past. That was a rule we made. We don't bring up the past because then it just becomes a, another war. So it was about moving on and forward. And the same with Jacob. I don't bring up the past. I'm not going to talk about what he did anymore. We don't talk about it. But what we do talk about is how well he's got on and where he's thriving now and what he's doing with it. And he's actually had very beautiful objective look backs on how his behavior was. And he can actually identify that he was being a bit of a brat 
um, and that he was the one that was causing the problems. Yes, there were some teachers that weren't supporting him, but we, I just said to him, we could blame the teachers or we could take responsibility for our part in it. Oh, absolutely. And yes, Gosh. Yeah. Yeah, accountability is just one of the best gifts we can give our children. Yeah, mm. yeah. So does that does that help you, my darling? I hope yeah. that gives you the picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I just think it's it's often we think about all this, um, all of this uh, like betterment of ourselves, I guess, as work to do, but we don't think about it as being the work. And I think yes. that is a really lovely. Um, it's not necessarily a reframe, but just sort of sharing the load, if you like, mm. mentally on how we can um, how we can move forward with this stuff. So that's yeah, that's why I wanted to ask that last little question um, to it. make Thank sure you. people felt clear. So um, I have all the details on where people can get the book in the show notes. So please do go and check out the episode. Um, lotoxlife.com forward slash podcast but otherwise we can find you online at uh, kim morrison is it dot com dot au just dot com dot com and yep. also uh, 28 and then what's that one dot com <laughs> dot com the word, the word 20 and the number eight <laughs> yeah that's com. right exactly that's <laughs> but again all those details are in the show notes as well so you can pop over there and get everything you need thank you so much kim for this oh my beautiful conversation oh my pleasure and i tell you one of my favorite platforms for social media is is Instagram where, you know, a picture can say a thousand words and I, I love connecting with people there. So um, I just want to say thank you, you amazing soul. I really, it's an honour to have you on our show up for a chat um, where the three of us just totally enjoyed what you're doing and what you're about. I love your new book and and I just feel very privileged to be here with you. So thank you, gorgeous Alex. Oh, likewise, Kim. Thanks again. Mm. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy having these conversations and bringing them to you. Now, where can you find me and Lotox Life from here on in? Well, you've obviously got lotoxlife.com and there we have everything beautifully organized into food, home, body and mind topics as well as kids and a whole bunch of free downloadables and resources to help you, inspire you to take community action. And there's amazing A to Z recipes there if you're ever getting a little bit stale in the kitchen and a whole bunch of articles that I've written. You can also find me on Instagram at Lotox Life and also on Facebook by page the same name. I make everything super easy, Lotox Life, so you can find it really, really simply. Thank you so much to everybody who leaves a five-star review over on Stitcher or iTunes or wherever it is that you tune into the show. And also to let you know that you can join us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Lotox Life and come join the private Lotox Life Club. In there, over time, more and more cool stuff is about to be added. It's a place where we can continue the conversations, chat about the weekly show, you're going to get bonus Q&A and all sorts of things over time. I explain everything over on Patreon, so I encourage you to check that out. And in the meantime, I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.